Mark chapter 10, Jesus is getting ready to go to Jerusalem, right? And he begins to tell them about leadership in the kingdom of God. He begins to tell them that in the kingdom, basically, I'm going to give a little paraphrase, that we don't lord or rule over people, but the greatest among you will be your servant. So it's not this top-down leadership. It's bottom-up. You know, right? So the, the, the marketing scheme of every marketing thing is always to be like at the top of, of the pyramid, right? Well, in the kingdom of God, it's the direct opposite. It's the greatest among you will be your servant. So it's actually at the bottom. So it's not top-down leadership. It's bottom-up leadership. Then to seal the deal, as he's describing leadership... He goes like this. The son of man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. And then he prophesies the direct order of his betrayal and his crucifixion. And what, what is he saying? Why is there a connection to leadership and sacrifice? What, where is the connection there? Because there's nothing more influential. There's nothing more moving than sacrificial love. Sacrificial love is what kingdom leadership looks like. So he's telling his guys this story. Now, remember, if you follow the Mark narrative, he's getting ready to go into the city of Jerusalem. It's going to be exciting. They're going to say Hosanna, and then they're going to crucify him. So there's a whole bunch of things. There's many, many different dynamics that are happening around this time. Right Now I want to kind of paint a bigger picture so that when we focus in and zoom in on the story, we catch what's really happening. Jesus is talking to his guys. He's on the way. He's walking, talking. They're doing what Jesus did with his guys. He's explaining things to them. And now he's going from Jericho. He's going to go to Jericho. And then from Jericho, he's going to go into Jerusalem. Right Now, the Jericho that we're going to see is not the Jericho of the book of Joshua. That Jericho was flattened and pretty much destroyed. So this is basically a rebuilt Jericho very close to the old Jericho. But it's not actually the same Jericho from the book of Joshua. But it was renamed Jericho, and it is Jericho. It's just not that Jericho. <laughs> it would be like, imagine, you know, a, a, you know, a wave comes in, destroys a coastal city. And then they rebuild the coastal city and then rename it the same thing. But they start a little further back in the city because the waves took some of the land out to sea. Well, that's kind of what happened with war. And they, you know, broke everything to nothing and then rebuilt from that. All right. So now he's in, there's, there's a man and they're going to Jericho. And we're going to learn about this guy. Now, verse 46, now they came to Jericho as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet. Then he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still. And commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man saying to him, be of good cheer. 
rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, that I might receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road again. All right. There's a lot in this little story. But what's happening is, Jesus is leaving Jericho, and he's going into Jerusalem. That's where he's going. That's where he's headed. And a blind man hears that Jesus of Nazareth is here. So he begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, you know, cry out. Then he takes his garment off, and he throws it off, and then... You know, he goes to Jesus after he was called. Now, there's a lot of cultural implications to what is happening. Number one, Jericho was a wealthy city. Jericho would be like a Times Square, New York City, for a beggar. This is a strategic location for him to be to get money. So this guy is not a dumb guy. He's good at begging. That's his lot in life at this point. He's blind. He can't work. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's no, you know, social system really other than him being legally able to beg. Now, what made him legally able to beg was he was blind and he also had, it says, remember how it says that he cast his garment aside? Well, that garment actually is one of the things that gave him legal right to beg. All right. So I want to just paint the whole picture in just a second. So... Here's what's happening. You have a guy who is desperate for God to do something in his life. He's very aware of his need. He's blind. He can't see. Now, when he calls Jesus the son of David, he's actually saying Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures that his eyes have never seen. Because the Messiah will open the eyes of the blind. Now, when he calls him son of David, he's saying that's the lineage, that's where you're from, that's according to the scriptures. But the son of David, David had no mercy on the blind. But the Messiah will be different. And so he's crying out, son of David, son of David. And you know what the crowd does? Shh, be quiet. Just calm down. Not today. It, it, another time. Just, just take it easy. Just, just calm down. But he's desperate. You, we have to see that. He's desperate. This guy is not going to be turned down. There's a principle in the Gospels that when people are desperate, God responds. There's a group of people who rip the roof off and destroy someone else's house in pursuit of someone else's healing, and God does it. There's a woman who risks cultural everything. She risks being stoned by touching a rabbi, which they did not do in those days, so that she would be healed. There is something to desperation that causes God to respond. That doesn't mean we earn something, and it still doesn't mean we deserve something, but there is something about when someone has came to the very end of their rope and they says, that's it, no more, I'm done, and there's a desperation that wells up within their soul, God responds to that in the Gospels 100% of the time. 
100% of the time. You will never find anywhere in the Gospels when someone comes to the end of their rope in that manner where they go for a touch from Jesus and it doesn't happen. Now, I don't always represent Jesus as exactly as Jesus should be represented. But when Jesus is representing himself here, 100% of the time in the Gospels, when someone comes to him in that manner, God responds. 100% of the time. You won't find it. Any other thing, this is what happens in the gospel. So this, is, this guy, is Bartimaeus, is, is desperate, and he's hungry for his eyes to be open. Could you imagine the first time your eyes are open, the first person you look at is Jesus? Just, just think about that for a second. I, but I, I want to show you a bigger picture because many times we look at a healing as if it's just a healing but this is not just about eyes being open. It's not just about prophecy being fulfilled. It's not just fully identifying who Jesus is. There's more to it. And this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is rescuing someone's life. Do you notice that he's sitting there begging? No dignity. No vision. He's isolated. He's alone. But everything is about to change for this man. And I I want to actually slow down and I want you to think of the implications of, imagine if you sat alone for six or eight or ten hours a day, you had no dignity and you, you lived like this. Think about how you'd feel emotionally. Think about how you feel socially. Think about how you, how, how would you look at tomorrow? Would you be excited to wake up? Yet yeah, we have to be honest with ourselves, right? We have to look at the story because these are real people in a real place. This really did happen. It's not some sort of a fairy tale. This is real life. These are real things. These are real people. Now, the crowd warns him to be quiet and he cried out all the more. Sometimes we will receive opposition before we receive what God has for us. Now, it's interesting that the very same people that were telling him to shut up and be quiet, basically, were the same people that then took him to Jesus. Right? Faith has the power to turn your opposition into your team. All right, let me, let me continue. Many warned him to be quiet. He cried out all the more, son of David. Now, verse 49, Jesus stood still, think about this, and commanded that he be brought to him. Jesus is not asking. Jesus is now telling. I want us to stop for a second. There's a crowd of people surrounding Jesus. Jesus is going somewhere. Jesus knows what is before him. Jesus knows what's going on. And there is a man whose desperation stops God himself in his tracks and causes him to respond. What is the point? The point is that if we're hungry and that if we're desperate and if we're serious, God will respond. 
there may be one person here tonight who that, that's their, that, that fully describes where they are. Could be more than one. I don't know. But what I want to show you is that God responds when we go there. Then they called him blind man saying, be of good cheer, rise. He's calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. Now, that garment represents his identity. It represents his ability or his legal right to be a beggar, to receive handouts, to, to basically do what he is doing and to exist how he's existing. It's legally what allows him to do that. So what's interesting is, as he stands up and he goes to Jesus, he takes his past and throws it away. He takes his comfort, he throws it away. He takes his identity that he derives from his condition. Some people get identity from their sickness. I have this, I am that. They find identity and comfort in their affliction. So now faith is welling up in this man because Jesus is talking to him and he takes this garment that gives him the right to beg and he throws it aside because he knows that he will never beg again. There's something happening within this man. There is a reality that is entering into his understanding, although his eyes are still closed. And now, he's being led pretty much, you know, he's walking blindly to Jesus. And these are the last seconds of his blindness. His condition is about to be over. His identity is about to be transformed. His whole entire life is about to be completely, completely ratified and rescued by the grace of God. But I want to talk about his desperation and I want to talk about how his desperation met the time and the season of Jesus and what Jesus was doing. Where was Jesus going? To Jerusalem. To do what? To be crucified. If that man would not have got a touch from Jesus then, he may not have got a touch from Jesus ever. He may have met the apostles. We don't know what happened, so we're not going to read into that. But what we do know is that was the last time Jesus is going to be walking the earth healing the sick. So when, when a desperation, when, when you are sensing, when you are feeling, when there is movement on the inside of you, when faith is moving in you and you feel a desperation and you feel a hunger and you feel a cry and you feel that... You got to go at that. Because it may be the right time. That was never going to happen again. Let me say this. Jesus never passed on that road again. Never. The point is that we have to be sensitive and responsive to what is going on on the inside. Because sometimes the circumstances on the outside will try to silence the voice of God or the voice of faith in you on the inside. Yeah. 
He's saying, son of David, have mercy on me. They're saying, hey, be quiet. Shh. Tomorrow it'll happen. They're, you know, next week, you'll be all right. You know, unbelief always pushes the move of God into the future. Faith pulls eternity into now. Unbelief pushes the move of God into the future, into the millennium, into this, into that, where we have no responsibility to live and believe God to do the impossible. Now. So this man is desperate and he's hungry and he's crying out for God to touch him. And then Jesus says, so what do you want me to do for you? Jesus wanted to hear from his mouth what he wanted and what he needed. Jesus is not unaware of what was going on with the man. Jesus knew. Sometimes God wants to hear it from your mouth. I want to encourage you, do not be afraid to bring your needs before the Lord. And here's what I'll tell you. If you don't bring your needs before the Lord, who are you going to bring them before? If you don't bring your needs before the Lord, your needs will wind up becoming medicated. You will self-medicate your needs with everything other than the Lord. That is the first place that we need to take our needs. The first place. Doesn't matter what those needs are. That is the first place that we as believers need to take our needs. That is the safest place to go. Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Now, he goes from being isolated, being alone, being poor, being broke, deriving identity from his condition, from his lack of vision. That's kind of who he was and what he did. To now following Jesus. And when I say following Jesus, I'm not just saying, like, trying to obey what he tells you, be a nice person, going to church. I'm talking about, that's great. That's what we need to do because Jesus is not walking around Cape May. But I'm talking about something epic and historical that was only going to happen one time in time and space. He marched in to, with them when the whole city erupted. And prophecy was fulfilled. He, his healing was a manifestation that Jesus is the Messiah. So what they were singing in that next city, he experienced on the way into that city. Faith pulls eternity and destiny into now. Amen. We have to see this. Because this is essential. And the reason I say this is essential is because in your life, there could be an opportunity that only comes around once. And I don't say that to make you afraid or to make you have regret. Because the grace of God covers our, you know, the mercy of God covers our sin. The grace of God empowers us to live righteously. And God is merciful and God is patient. And we know through the scriptures. However, there are times where... You have to be in the right place at the right time, and that happens through obedience and through listening to God. The day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 happened once. 500 people started, 120 people stayed. The day of Pentecost was a shrinking prayer meeting. The people who persevered, the people who old school word tarried, received. 
The people who waited received. The people who persevered received. So there is a realm of hunger and contending that allows us to receive what God has for us. I'll give you another short illustration. All of the disciples were sleeping when Jesus said, Can't you guys pray for me one hour? Except John. He would not have been able to write John 17 if he was sleeping. John 17 is Jesus praying to the Father. The rest of the guys are sleeping. John is not, or else John 17 wouldn't have been written. So when you are someone who contends, when you are someone who pursues, you will receive more than someone who goes, nah, I'm okay. I'm fine the way I am. I'm good. I got it. I don't need to go to that service. I don't need to do this. I'm just okay the way I am. But if you purpose in your heart to say, no, 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 no. I want all of what God has. No, no, no. I have a real condition. I have a real need. And today is the day that Jesus is going to meet that need. Let me give you another scripture. What does God say? To the pure, I'll show myself pure. To the upright, I'll show myself upright. To the fraud, I will show myself a fraud. What we believe about God will determine what we receive from God. I'm saying this because there are times and seasons in all of our lives where we need to be very attentive to what God is saying to us because our future could depend on it. Other people's future could depend on it. And you have a sphere of influence that I don't have. There are people that I cannot reach that you talk to. There are people who you live your daily life in front of every day that see Jesus in you and in the way you live and the way you speak. And they don't see me, they don't know me. And so it's your job to represent Jesus well to them. It's your job to live consistently before them so that they can have trust in you, so that when they have a need in their life, they know somewhere they can go, they know a safe place. They know somewhere that they can find answers. All right? Now, I'm going to do another, another scripture. Let's go to Mark, rather Matthew chapter 8. Now, Matthew chapter 8 is very interesting, but if you read cha- Matthew chapter 8 and 9, what you're going to see is most of Matthew 8 and 9 are all healings. It's a very, very loaded part of the scripture, specifically with healings. Now, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is all preaching. And Matthew 7, 8, uh, uh, Matthew 8, rather, and 9 is mostly healing. And then Matthew 10, he commissions them to do what he's just demonstrated to them. So, in Matthew 5 and through 7, he's teaching them how the kingdom works. He's teaching them kingdom values. He's teaching them how the kingdom is different from the world, the system of the world. He's talking to them how to pray, how to, you know, and then in 8 and 9, he's demonstrating the kingdom. He's showing them the power and the authority of the kingdom. And then in Matthew 9, the last verses, and then in 10, he's sending them to do what he's just demonstrated for them. 
That's how real learning happens. Real, we really know something when we do it. Action solidifies learning. And so he's building a, a group of guys around the mission of his father and in his father's kingdom. And so there's, there's this illustration in this whole passage that's really, really important. And, um, and I want to kind of talk about it a little bit. And then I'm going to, for those who be here, I'm going to kind of bring this back up tomorrow and then paint another picture around the same thing because there's something that I think God wants to do prophetically. I sense it in my spirit. I feel it. I'm seeing it and I, and I just sense the Lord is asking us to be sacrificial in love. That sacrificial love will bring healing to people. That when we go out of our way, when we, when we demonstrate real compassion, not pity, not like, oh, you know, poor you. I'm talking about real love. That there, there are some things that God can do when we move with him in that way that he won't do if we don't move with him in that way. Practically speaking, more people get healed when you pray for them than when you don't, <laughs> right? All right. Now, um, culturally speaking, let's think about this, the dynamics of who Jesus is healing. Matthew 8, we're going to start in verse 5. If you have a Bible, many of your Bibles may say something like, Jesus heals a centurion's servant. You may see that in your Bible. I don't know if you have that or something similar to that. Matthew 8, verse 5. All right. Well, who is the centurion? Well, hold on. Israel, the nation of Israel, is under Roman captivity. How many of you know that's not good? Right? They are occupied by pagans, right? They are occupied by adulterous, promiscuous, idolatrous, money-hungry, power-hungry, brutal, a brutal empire, completely brutal, okay? Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And Jesus is a Jew, (laughs) He is Jewish. Jesus is not, um, you know, from, you know, Alabama. Jesus is a Jew from Palestine who is literally a political refugee whose family had to flee Israel into Egypt so he wouldn't be destroyed. So Jesus, just so you know, is a political refugee. Right? You tracking with me? Do you notice that Jesus didn't get a fair trial? You know why? He, he, he wasn't a citizen of Rome. He paid taxes in a land that he wasn't even a citizen in, so as if to be blameless. Now, if he wouldn't have been cruci- if he wouldn't have been prosecuted, if he would have been justly prosecuted, he couldn't be our savior. Right, so through the injustice of his crucifixion, we, we find mercy and justice and God satisfies everything and, and the whole gospel happens that way. So that, that is really, how many of you know that's good news? But let's be honest, he 
had a reason to have a chip on his shoulder. He had a reason to be angry. He experienced injustice. Now, if you read Matthew in the beginning of the, the, the genealogy of Matthew, it says, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know what that really means? You know what he's really saying, Matthew, who is actually Levi, who actually was a tax collector, who actually extorted Israel? He used to steal from God's people and get rich off them, and then God sanctified him, changed him, and used him to give God's people the most valuable thing that they could receive, which is the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus has a reason to be angry. He has a reason to hate Rome. He has a reason to have a chip on his shoulder. He has a reason to be bitter. He has a reason. But he doesn't. Imagine if a foreign nation invaded America, occupied us, and in three years from now, we're living under the occupation of some foreign nation, and then all of a sudden, the pastor goes, you know what, we've got to really send a team out to, uh, to, the, to the barracks, the army barracks of this foreign nation, because one of their guys is sick, and we want to get him healed. Right? It sounds, now I know it sounds bananas. It sounds illogical. It sounds crazy. It doesn't even, are you serious? Like, really? Like, heal him? Like, he should die. And, they, you know, like, and that would be, like, justified. Like, it's fine. He's, he's a bad, these are bad people. They're hurting innocent people. Yes? Are you tracking with me? Israel was invaded. Like they, right? Are you, are you following me? I'm just trying to paint the story because sometimes we're like, oh yeah, centurion serving gets healed. Great. Praise the Lord. Amen. Healing is powerful. Healing is for today. We speak in tongues and we believe it and that's it. Wait a minute. He's healing his enemy. Amen. I'm sorry, <laughs> i got to say this. The gospel calls us to radical love. To love that transcends natural logic. Love that says, I value, this is Jesus' value system, not mine. I value sacrificial love over self-preservation. So if your first motive is self-preservation, then you cannot have sacrificial love. Now, if you're willing to live in a place of sacrifice, yes, you can understand how to preserve yourself. The Bible says to flee persecution. The Bible doesn't say volunteer to be chopped in half. Right? So I understand that we're human, and so we're created to watch out for ourselves, watch out for our kids, and I don't want to make that seem as if, as if it's bad, because it's not. There's a very natural part of real life, and that's important. Without self-preservation, you don't take a shower, you don't go to the bathroom, you don't eat, you're just going to rot and die. So there is a, a natural element to all this that keeps us normal and healthy and functioning, and, and I'm not in any way challenging that, right? But what I am saying is, the gospel calls us to a place of radical love where then God can do healing 
wild healing, crazy healing through us that brings about restoration to people and to people's lives and to people's families. Watch this story. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, which is actually where his ministry base was, and the reason his ministry base was there is because it was a fish village, and so it was like Jesus' Facebook account. If he said something in Capernaum, it would go out to other places immediately because there were ships in and out and in and out all the time. It would be like living in northern New Jersey, so there's three airports. So he's living in a strategic location. He's operating from a strategic location. That's where Capernaum, that's where Jesus is actually his base was. All right. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. Now, let's stop there for a second. Do you see that the oppressor or the occupier actually also has compassion just like we do? That there's someone that he cares about just like there's people that we care about? And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do, and he does. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. What? And I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said unto the centurion, Go your way, as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Okay. Jesus says... Inside the people of God, which is the nation of Israel at this time, they did not have faith like this pagan, occupier, soldier had faith. Jesus called it great faith. Jesus does not exaggerate or mince words. When Jesus says it's great, how many of you know it's great, right? Jesus is not a flatterer. He doesn't add to the story. You know, he he says it for what it is. He says, great faith. Not even in all of Israel has there been this kind of faith. But what is the bigger context? The bigger context of how faith works is faith works. The greatest realm of faith works through a proper understanding of how to relate to authority. Now, think of this. This man, this centurion, is relating to corrupt authority properly. So much so that Jesus says, I haven't found this kind of great faith in all of Israel. Old Testament story. Within a destructive and dysfunctional environment of Saul, a David can emerge. Amen. It's easy to say you honor someone who's honorable. 
It's easy to love people who love you. Here you have a pagan honoring another pagan. He says, I am a man under authority. Therefore, I have authority. I say to someone, go, and he goes. But he says that he has authority because he's what? Under authority. And I'm not saying this in a, in a way to be power hungry or to say we're trying to exercise authority over people because that's not what this is about. But what this is about is that for any of us, if we are rebellious to God or to God's order, and if we don't properly relate to authority, we cannot operate in great faith. Because great faith operates within the context of an understanding of authority. Here's what the devil does. The devil says, you know what? I know that. I read the Bible. I heard this whole thing from the beginning. So I'm going to mar the, the eyes of authority figures in your life. I'm going to, your father's going to abuse you. Your mother's going to neglect you. Someone is going to molest you. Someone is going to talk down to you. I'm going to take people who are above you and I'm going to mar them in your sight. So that if I mar them in your sight, so that if they hurt you, what happens? You lose regard and respect and a proper understanding of how to relate to authority because you've been hurt by authority. So the enemy knows that. So he then exploits evil people to then exploit and hurt other people who are under them so that they can never operate in great faith. Do you know why? Because great faith displaces him. Great faith sends the devil in eviction notice. Great faith tells someone, gee, you don't even have to come to my house, just speak the word of God. Great faith intuitively knows what God can do and what God will do. That's what great faith is. Great faith is knowing not only that God can, but that God will. See, this is a critical thing for us to understand. You know why? Because we live in a day where all through the media, all through church scandals, all through presidential elections, people in the world are trying to mar our respect for people in positions of authority. I myself have been guilty, I'm not pointing a finger at you, about saying things about the present or this administration or things that are honest but not honorable. Amen. Or we have been given the freedom of speech in America, which, thank God, it's a precious treasure that many people bled for and died for. And I'm thankful for that. But the caution with that is this. We have freedoms in America to say whatever the heck we want that we do not have in the kingdom of God. Because that's not how God says to speak. So, here's what happens. The enemy distorts our understanding of authority through corrupt authority. Which means we place stock in his market, in his value system. We do not honor authority properly. We lose great faith. We cannot operate from a place of great faith. And then we don't have influence on 
people in authority. And what happens? Our culture continues to erode and erode and erode and erode. Why? Because we lose the influence of what great faith can do. That doesn't mean that we call good evil and evil good. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you shouldn't speak out against a bad policy. I'm not saying that you shouldn't exercise your right to speak freely. But I'm saying if the enemy can get us to have a lack of regard for authority through the media, through corruption, through the pain we've experienced, we cannot operate within the realm of great faith. And great faith is what displaces the enemy and establishes the kingdom and establishes a literal and real testimony of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing in the earth. Let me, let me give you an example. Why did John the Baptist feel as if he had to rebuke King Herod for sleeping with his brother's wife? Why? What was that about? Well, that was about that people were also saying that Herod was the king of the Jews. So John the Baptist, as a prophet stood up and said, he cannot be the king of the Jews because the king of the Jews doesn't sleep with his brother's wife. In other words, John the Baptist was not just, it wasn't just a question of morality. It was a bigger question of morality, but it was about identity. And John was saying that this guy sleeping with his brother's wife is not the king of the Jews, which means he is not the Messiah. And that's why John died. See, we've got to understand the culture that we live in. We have to choose their battles. If that would have been simply a moral issue, it may not have been worth his head. But because it was a messianic issue, it was worth his head. Amen. Because what was his job to do? Prepare the way of the Lord. So when he was saying, hey, this guy is not the king of the Jews, he was taking his authority and his influence and saying, hey, that's not the guy. So he was being actually faithful to his calling, and it cost him his head. It wasn't that he was meddling in someone's private life. It was, it was more than that. See? And, and so I'm saying all this to say, I'm going to tie it together tomorrow more. But what I feel is prophetic for us as a nation is that God wants to do healing in our nation. Racial healing. God wants churches to love each other. God doesn't want churches to be in competition with each other. God wants pastors to love each other and get along with each other. I'm part of this thing in North Jersey where we get together with a whole bunch of pastors every Tuesday. And we hang out. We don't just pray. We are friends. We're starting to like each other. <laughs> you know? So, the point of this is that... Okay, you cut your skin, right? You get a good deep cut. Has anyone ever got a good deep cut? Okay, I've got a good deep cut too. What happens? Your skin through the cut is what's separated. You ever see it? And then there's that white scabby and stuff that grows in between. And then what happens? Later, the skin comes back together. What does sickness do? Sickness of the soul separates 
us from who we really are. Sickness in the body separates us from what we're supposed to do. I'm sick, I can't go. I'm sick, I can't do this. I'm tired, I can't, right? So the enemy takes sickness, and I'm not saying if you're sick, it's your fault, and you're some sort of bad person. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying the enemy will exploit sickness in the soul or in the body so that we don't fulfill purpose, so that we don't engage in what God has for us. And I can tell you that I'm the worst sick person you ever meet because I just want to watch Netflix and have Chinese food. I don't want to be productive because all I'm thinking about is me. I'm the worst sick person. My wife can tell you. You too? Okay. So, so I'm saying this is what happened to Peter's mother-in-law. Peter's mother-in-law was sick. Jesus touched her hand. She got well. What was the first thing she did? She got up and served. What's the point? Healthy people serve. Sick people don't serve. Sick people don't engage. Healthy people engage. Healthy people assume responsibility for what God wants to do in their generation. Sick people isolate themselves from others. In like a quarantine of their own pain and misery. And they don't engage in what God wants to do. But what I believe and what I'm understanding is that... God wants to heal us so that we can be together. You know, when someone has a certain level of sickness, you have to like go into the hospital room with stuff on when they have a certain type of infection or some, sometimes they don't even want people to go in there. There are some people that are so toxic that, you know, one root of bitterness defiles many. Right? There's toxic people, right? And God wants to bring healing to people so that we could be together. Because it is in the together that we move forward as a people. It is not, let's say, just the pastor's job to help the church grow. It's about you guys being with Jesus, being with one another, and moving forward with mission so that the thing of, that God is doing which is the church, grows. And I'm not just talking about number, but I am talking about numbers. Because numbers represent names, and names are people. And if numbers didn't matter, there wouldn't be a book of numbers in the Bible. So numbers does matter, because numbers is a reflection of people. And I'm not saying that having a big church is a goal, and that doesn't define success. Having a big church doesn't mean you sold out, and having a small church doesn't mean you're a failure. But what I'm saying is, when we're healthy, when we get healthy, when we're, when we're well, what, what is the first thing that we're concerned about? Other people. When we're not well, we don't care if the whole world goes to hell. Because we are not doing well. We are preoccupied with our own pain, our own family pain, our own issues, our own stresses, our own struggles... And we can't see the people in front of us that God is asking us to speak to. That God is asking us to love. So if we can't see the people right in front of us, how would we ever really go out of our way to live like sacrificially in love? For love to be sacrificial where sacrificial love is intentionally going out of your way. 
you know, compassion is you seeing something, you responding. Sacrificial love is you making someone else's problem your business. It's like, you know, compassion in, you know, capital letters. It's, 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 a, it's an aggressive thing where you put yourself out there for others. And see, when, it, when we're talking about the healing of the soul or the healing of the body, or we're talking about coming together for mission, what we're talking about is a group of people learning to be together. An audience isn't a church. You can have a church of 10, or you can have an audience of 10,000. But just because there's 10 doesn't mean it's a church. It could be an audience. What makes us a family what makes us a church is our coming together. That is what is attractive to the world. The world doesn't need big screens and loud sound. They have that, and it doesn't help them. Amen. And I'm not against that. I'd rather have a big screen than no screen. That's not the point, though. The point is that that's not what the world needs. What the world needs is a group of people who are together who love each other, who care for each other, who when they see how we interact with each other go, huh, that's different. Tell me, what's, why? Something like, are you guys crazy? Something really different about how you interact with each other, how you speak to one another, how you, you guys are fighting over who's paying for lunch. Like, you guys are different. And what that does is, here's what it does to people. You guys know, remember the Polaroid cameras? You take a picture and, you know, it takes, you know, it took like, you know, I don't know, a few minutes. And eventually you had this, you know, almost picture thing. Like, kind of not like HD pictures today, right? But you had a picture, right? Took a little while, you snap it, you know, it comes out. Every time you demonstrate love, you demonstrate healing, you demonstrate grace, every time you do something a different way, what you're doing is you're giving someone a snapshot and you're handing it to them. And then they have to make a choice. You're showing them a different way. And that's how kingdom influence works. Because what we're doing is, it's not just about getting someone to pray a prayer. That's really obviously important, and you want people to believe. But if they don't follow what they believe, the question is, do they really believe it? And we want to bring healing to relationships. God wants to bring healing to families and to relationships. There's brokenness and bitterness and pain in people's families that drives people far from God. And God wants to bring a healing to that so that there is a real witness of what, he, what the Father's house is like. Remember, everything that we do as believers is either pointing to God and showing people what he's like or pointing away from him. Our actions are either pointing people to God or pointing people away from God. And I, I just want to say this in, in honesty... In all honesty, if we asked ourselves this question, this is a disturbing question for me, for all of us. Are we more like a prosecutor 
or an advocate? Hallelujah. I can say some days I am more like a prosecutor. Now, when we communicate Jesus with a strong moral hardline, I'm not talking about a compromised gospel. I want you to hear that. I'm talking about a good is good and evil is evil, a right is wrong, a sin is sin. Immorality in any context is not righteous or good or acceptable in God's sight. I just want to be clear. I don't want you to think, what is he saying? No, I'm, I'm telling you what I'm saying. But my question to us is as others look at us and as they hear us communicate and as they look at our posts, they look at our lives, are they seeing people who are pointing a finger or are they seeing a group of people who are extending a hand? Now the very reason we are extending a hand tells someone that it's obviously not okay what they're doing or else they wouldn't need a hand. Are you seeing, you seeing, so whether you're pointing a finger or you're extending a hand, you're still saying, you need help. <laughs> you need help. But see, one allows us to serve and one makes us the judge and jury. You know, I was talking to a Muslim guy the other day. I said, my savior is my judge. How about you? See, what I'm saying is, and, and I'm going to wrap this up. God wants us to be healed and to be healthy. But I think one of the, one of the challenges that we're going to have in America now, and it's going to be a rising challenge, is how do we love people who do not want what's best for us, who are, who are the opposition, who are against us, who are not concerned with our well-being, who are a real opposition, who are a real threat, who do have a real destructive agenda that is well-funded. How do we love people with holding fast to the truth but not in the posture of a finger being pointed, but a hand being extended. How do we do that? Because see, as I look through the Gospels, Jesus never okayed sin. He never did. But he really, really did some really bizarre and troubling things, like heal a centurion's servant. That's troubling. They come to get him in the garden. Peter chops someone's ear off. Jesus picks the ear up. Right as he's about to be taken to be crucified. And puts the ear back on the soldier. Now, that's a healing that we don't hear talked about. Why? Because it's challenging. It's not comfortable. I would like to leave that ear right on the floor. That's what he gets. We're trying to touch Jesus. Right? But that's not how Jesus feels about it. 
Jesus feels as if his ear belongs where he put it when he created him. <laughs> Back on his head. <laughs> are, are you tracking with me? So I'm talking about healing, yes, but I'm talking about it within a context of sacrificial love. Because it's sacrificial love that really paid for healing. That's how, by the stripes of Jesus, we were healed. Sacrificial love, self-sacrifice, is the price of healing. It's very expensive. And I'm, I'm talking about this for the reason that if you look honestly in the society we are living in, this is our calling and this is what will be required of us on some level. Will we be stoned? I'm not sure. But here's the reality. The reality is there's people who already hate us, who already want what is not good for us as a people. And I don't just speak as Christians, but I'm actually also talking about our nation as a nation. So I'm first talking because first, our first allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Actually, it's really our only allegiance. But we are citizens first of the kingdom. Then we are citizens of America. I'm thankful to have a blue passport. I love it. It's great. It, you know, but first, our first allegiance is the kingdom of God. So we have people who are against the kingdom of God. Not only are they against the kingdom of God, but they're against the well-being of our nation as a nation. So we have a very real opposition that takes many different shapes, many different faces, many different colors, many different ideologies, many different views... And this is the real question. How will, be, how will we as a people bring love to them? The them is not the us. How will we together, which makes us need to be together more than ever, how will we as a people bring love to, healing to, grace to people who want to harm us. Do you see the gospel? The gospel is bringing healing to people who want to bring harm to us. That's the gospel. And, and it's not just Jesus. It wasn't just Jesus. If it was just Jesus, you know what we could say? Jesus is fully God. It was just Jesus and then the rest of the guys just did another way. So we're okay. No, it wasn't just Jesus. Stephen, who was about 16 years old when he was martyred, guess whose guess who's clothes, the, the, the clothes from the guys who were throwing stones at Stephen, guess whose feet they winded up on? Paul, who was Saul then. And while Stephen was being stoned, while those garments were on Saul, Stephen prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The very next chapter, God is using Saul to advance a gospel that he doesn't even believe in because he takes persecution. He's persecuting the people. And what he thought was persecuting them was actually pushing them into all of the world to preach the gospel. So he was preaching the gospel before he even believed in the gospel. And the next chapter after that, Jesus 
answers the prayer of young Stephen and visits Saul. Who does Jesus visit? Someone who is in opposition to him. What is our tendency? If someone is in opposition to us, we resist them. We go away from them. If, if, our, if their behavior is not right to us, we, we step away. We, we step back. Jesus is the opposite. He's like, I'm coming for you, Saul. You know, like, ah. Right? We, we go like this. Ah. You make me uncomfortable. You're unsafe. You're untrustworthy. You're, you're this. You're that. We back up. We, we separate. We, Jesus does the direct opposite. The more uncomfortable someone's behavior is to Jesus, the more Jesus pursues that person. That's why people going to conferences and and shaking and and laughing, they're not having open heaven, life-transforming visitations of Jesus where they're murderers one day and saved the next day, but ISIS is. Because the more dysfunctional and evil someone's behavior is, the more the grace of God pursues them. Now, if they die without knowing Jesus, it's game over. That's why we have an imperative to share. There's, there is an urgency. And it's not just for some people and, you know, who are blowing people up. It's for our neighbors. But the question that I have for myself and for you is, how will we position ourselves to be instruments of healing to people who in many ways want to bring harm to either us or our way of life. How will we be an advocate for our opposition? How will we bring healing to people who are serving a different agenda? These are the questions that we're going to have to wrestle with in faith if we're going to obey and and, and hear the call of God in our generation because it's getting more complicated but the good news is Jesus is the solution and if we give ourselves to him he makes us an instrument of his healing of his wisdom of his power so that we can continue to demonstrate who he is and what he's like